Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for once again bringing us to your word. Thank you for once again opening your word to us so that we could be shaped by it, so that we could be made into the men and women of God you are creating us to be. God, bless us and make us a blessing. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I joined the Boy Scouts when I was 11 years old. Moved to a brand new town, didn't know anybody, new school for sixth grade, and we joined a troop at my elementary school there. It was great. The troop was famous for having a fantastic hiking program, very organized. Throughout the year, we did several conditioning hikes. A conditioning hike was one that was from easy to moderate, and the whole point of it was to shake down our gear, to make sure that we knew how to use our gear, to make sure we had the right gear. And then at the end of the year, we would always go on a long-term hike. You know, These were 10-day hikes that we went across the Sierras. On my first long-term hike, we started out at Saddlebag Lake, and we hiked up and over that glacier on the backside and back down. And going back down on that first day, we had to cross this raging river. OSHA for sure would not have approved. But we all survived and kept going on our merry way. About midway into this hike, we came to this little tiny lake. You could be sitting on one side of the lake and cast your line. You could be sitting on the other side of the lake, cast your line, you landed about the same place. The biggest fish we caught that day was maybe 12 inches. But if you had been eating freeze-dried, dehydrated food for several days, eating those little tiny fish was glorious. I mean, it was wonderful. Among the other things we were supposed to do on our layover day was to wash our clothes because we didn't want to carry too many clothes, so we packed enough so that we could wash them every couple of days with eco-friendly soap, of course. One problem I had is that I did not rinse out the soap. So after a couple of days walking in these unrinsed out socks, I wore off all the skin off the bottom of my feet. I'm not talking about blisters here. I'm talking about bloodied feet. By the end of the trip, I had no skin on my feet. And that last day, we had to hike down, down, down into Yosemite Valley. Guess what? I had to make it. Had to carry my pack. No helicopter was coming to get me. Those last few days are still some of the most pain that I have ever been in. One of the things that that reminds me of, that story reminds me of, is this fact, this reality, that glory comes through suffering. Now, I kind of worked backwards. I had the glorious experience at that lake and then had to suffer to get to the glorious experience of lying down in the middle of Yosemite Valley. But it's a reminder that our path, our journey is plagued with suffering. 
fact, that's our big idea from our passage today. You and I must walk the road to glory that passes through suffering. Now this big idea is very close to the same big idea that I'm giving for the entire Gospel of Mark. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accompanies His disciples to glory through suffering. Today we'll see Mark describe discipleship through a very particular one-time-in-history example that nevertheless lifts the curtain on what will come throughout the whole Gospel of Mark. Here today we are forewarned and therefore forearmed against the foes, the foes of discouragement and hopelessness and bitterness because we will be forewarned that our path will surely end in glory as it passes through this veil of woes. Let me read our passage we come to today in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark begins his explanation of the good news. By the way, I'm going to intentionally use the word gospel and good news differently. When I say gospel, I mean the book we are exegeting. And when I say good news, I mean the message that is preached. And so, as we come to the good news found in the gospel, we will see the good news today is that God the Father initiates salvation he initiates his salvation plan in history, and he initiates his salvation in the lives of individuals. The saving work that is the double cure, saves from wrath and makes me pure, is this good news. And the Father does it by meeting with us and by bringing us through the wilderness. Let's see how this is made clear in Mark 1. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, to get things rolling, Mark chooses to start his gospel by quoting Isaiah. Now, this is remarkable because Mark's audience is Gentile. 
They could care less about ancient Jewish prophets. But Mark cared. And the point is, in him quoting this, is that Jesus' work is in continuation. It is a continuation of the work that God the Father did in the Old Testament. The work that he did through his prophets, his priests, and his kings. Now, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of that. He is that continued. And any attempt to understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament is going to end in failure. But the second important point to get immediately here is that God the Father, Yahweh, is personally involved. Now, the quote found in verse 2 is actually from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and the quote in verse 3 is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Don't let that bother you. Evidently, it didn't bother people in Mark's day. It shouldn't bother us either. But it's important. Yahweh said, Behold, look, pay attention, I send. <clears throat> the Lord knew what he was doing, and the Lord made sure it got done. In fact, we will not understand what is going on here if we do not see and understand the fact that it's God the Father who initiates all of this. When he says, behold, I send, it's not just the first three verses of a, of a three words in a verse in Malachi. It's a reality. It's a reality that we must live in and come to terms with if we are going to live truly Christian lives. God initiates and we respond. And this understanding of initiating and response helps us to understand the next phrase where the Lord says, prepare your way. What does prepare your way mean? Well, let's ask a few questions. The first question we need to ask is prepare whose way? Whose way does the Lord want to prepare? And clearly, the answer is Jesus' way. God's the Son's way. The Messiah. He is whose way needs to be prepared. How does this happen? John the baptizer is meant to go into Jerusalem, or into Israel, and call people to repentance. He's calling people to repentance so that when the Messiah comes, he would have an audience, so to speak. In other words, if the people hadn't repented, if the people hadn't understood that they were sinners and turned to God, then when Jesus walks down the road, they wouldn't see him. Have you ever noticed that usually what keeps people from the kingdom, what keeps people from hearing about Jesus is not some argument, it's not some new scientific discovery, it's not even a bad experience at a church, although... All three of those do play a part. What keeps people from hearing Jesus is whatever flavor of sin they're addicted to. One of the first things that a believer must do is show those near him that there is a problem. We must be able to show people that there is a problem. And we must show them that the problem is not primarily education. The problem is not primarily 
wicked social systems. The problem that keeps people from Jesus is sin. My sin. Your sin. The problem that keeps people from Jesus is the fact that we don't want to listen because we'd rather pay attention to whatever flavor of soul cancer we enjoy. So the solution is to repent. The solution is to turn away from our sin and turn towards God. When we repent, then and only then can we for the first time see Jesus as he is. When someone's spiritual eyes have been washed with the tears of repentance, then when Jesus walks down the road, they won't see an insurrectionist or a miracle worker. They'll see the Messiah. They'll see Christ. They'll see the Son of God. And when someone, one of your near ones, has their spiritual eyes washed with the tears of repentance, when they see you Walking with Jesus, they will not see a myth. They will not see a profound philosopher. They'll see Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then, by God's grace, they will fall down and worship Him. That happens when they see disciples on the road to glory that passes through suffering. Walk the road to glory that passes through suffering. On a side note, it may or may not be that Mark intended or even spotted a specific point in the Malachi quote. He says, prepare your way. Then when we get to Acts, we see that the Christians, the earliest Christians, were first called followers of the way. Now, I want to note that you and I are followers of the way. The way that will lead to glory if you follow Jesus along that suffering road. That way leads to glory, and it leads to glory through suffering. I've already said it and we'll say it many times going through Mark. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accompanies His disciples to glory through suffering. Now this suffering is reflected and is kind of a big theme in the prologue. The first 13 verses in Mark's Gospel. And that is of the recurring idea of wilderness. The wilderness in the Bible is this idea that there is a place where God brings his people into trials and he meets us there. Over and over again, the wilderness is a place that God makes himself known and he makes himself known. He shows himself to be a person who will turn up the heat to melt our dross. Now, notice something else in this passage. There is one crying in the wilderness. Why is there one crying in the wilderness? Well, God sent him. But why is there one crying in the wilderness? Because not many are willing to go out there. There is one crying. 
But there's also one crying. In other words, the wilderness is painful, so God's messengers must be loud. Don't expect your status as a middle-class American to cause you to escape suffering. Do not expect that God will rescue you from the tribulation because he only wants Israel to suffer and not good little Christians. God always rescues his people through the wilderness. God rescues his people through many tribulations. God the Son accompanies his people to glory. Make no mistake, it will all be worth it. God the Son accompanies his people to glory through suffering. Now, see how this idea is picked up in the next two verses as well. Verses 5 and 6. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. I'm not sure I'm down with locusts. The honey I like. First thing he says here is that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Now, we need to allow Mark some hyperbole, but the, the point here is clear. Quite contrary to conventional wisdom, some lone dude out in the heat, out wearing funny clothes and out wearing funny or eating funny food, this strange person caused quite the stir among people who, and this is a crucial point, he caused this stir among people who were drawn out there by God. You see, humanly speaking, John wasn't much to see. Oh, he had some Facebook friends, but they were there mostly to laugh at the next ridiculous thing that he would say or do. But John appeared. God put John where God wanted John to be. The crowd appeared. God put the crowd where God wanted the crown to be. God takes the initiative. God works. God makes the wilderness, and God makes his people willing to go into the wilderness. But we must respond. We are not given a pass. The Bible is absolutely clear. You and I make real, voluntary, eternally significant choices. And you and I are responsible for those choices that God presents to us at his initiative. Okay? But in this one, what is the initiative? The initiative for what? Well, the initiative is to suffer in the wilderness. Look what he says. The initiative is the baptism of repentance. In the wilderness, in the place of trial and presence, God's people meet God when we meet him repentantly. When we meet him confessing our sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like confessing my sins. It's not comfortable. And I'll add to that, most of us listening, most of you all listening to this sermon are good Baptists, and you recognize that baptism is never what saves you. But baptism here 
was the means. It was the tool that people used to announce or declare the heart action of repentance. The baptism did not save anyone. The forgiveness of sins came because the people repented. Because the people repented at John the baptizer's preaching, they were baptized and thus they were saved. But I want also to note that the wilderness, in the wilderness, and with John's very politically incorrect sermons, we find people willing to hear him. We find people willing to hear, even though every church uh, person who wants to tell churches what to do would say, no, that's the wrong thing to do. That's, that's a terrible idea. Why on earth would you do that? But God took the initiative. God gave grace. The people coming to John, you must see, is grace upon grace. God's undeserved power to accomplish kingdom purposes upon God's undeserved power to accomplish kingdom purposes. God moved, people came. Friends, this is a river of blessing that is greater than the Jordan at flood stage. And it remains true. God does not always grant grace. People are not always willing to go into the wilderness. People will not always repent. Sometimes a culture allows itself to run headlong against the truth for so long that it cannot turn back. Church, today is not a time to fear. Today in our culture, running headlong against the truth is not a time to huddle. It's not a time to be passive or apathetic. It is a time to love those near you by recklessly trusting God to give you grace and then you using that grace to love them, to joyfully sacrifice for those nearest you. Love, not protests or Facebook posts, is what will bring people to repentance. And God sends revival when His people Repent. God sends rivers of blessing when his people turn to him and turn away from their idols. God sends rivers of blessings disguised as strange men who do strange things and eat strange food to be in strange places. And those are the people who are the strangest of all beginnings of rivers of blessings. You don't need to meet your cultural expectations to be a blessing. If the world believes you to be exactly like them, why would they get up early on Sunday morning? Instead, join Jesus in the wilderness. He will meet you there. Meet him in his word. Meet him with other Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. And ask 
the Father to give you this gift of repentance. Repentance in yourself, but also repentance in others. In fact, there's a promise specifically for this. It's found in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And if he know, if we know that he hears us, we know that we will have whatever we have asked from him. The promise is you ask something that God tells you in his word that he wants you to have, he's going to give it to you. So pray. Ask for repentance in your own heart. And then say thank you. And then move on. One more note about the wilderness aspect of this passage because we're going to keep coming to it as we go through Mark. The people had to come. The people had to walk out of Jerusalem and come. The people had to leave their city life, even if only for a moment, to go into the wilderness and meet with the Lord because the noise is too great in the city. Do you know what I'm talking about? We need to walk the road to glory that passes through suffering. If you are going to walk in the way, if you're going to follow the way, if you're going to walk in the way prepared for you by the Lord, it will cost you. Withdrawal from the world can take many, many forms. And the wilderness itself in your life may be found right here in Santa Maria, California. Join him in that wilderness. But I'm going to pause here because I want to show you that this is a theme that occurs in different language throughout the Gospel of Mark. And I want to show this to you because it's not so easily seen unless it's brought to your attention. Wilderness and suffering, which I don't necessarily equate, but they are certainly related. Wilderness is where God meets people people in, in the scripture, where he meets his people in scripture. And it's when we suffer that we ask for God to meet with us. When we're in the wilderness, when we're suffering, God is bringing us there to meet with us, and that's where we ask him to meet us. And there are three key texts placed in strategic spots throughout Mark that highlight the reality that is brought to the fore here at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Go out and meet God in the wilderness. The first one that I want to bring to your attention, Jesus is with his disciples in the wilderness of Gentile-occupied territory north of Samaria, and he calls his people to a life of suffering. He says, Mark 8.34, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I have a question. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? Does it mean that you'll feel bad when you read someone's Facebook post you don't like? Does it mean that you are angry because the Supreme Court doesn't rule your way? Does take up your cross daily mean that you're upset by all the bad things that are happening in the world today? Hardly. It comes much closer to home. Dallas Willard says, self-denial or death to self, speaking about this passage, is the condition where the mere fact that I don't get what I want 
does not surprise me or offend me, and it has no control over me. Why? Why would that be something Jesus is talking about when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? Why does inconvenience not control the Christian? Because the Christian thinks of his or her life in terms of Jesus and in terms of serving his kingdom. When I am at home, I'm sitting on my couch drinking my lemonade, all is good. When I am in the wilderness with Jesus, I don't expect comfort. I expect bloody feet. Not bloody because of my stupidity, like when I was 12. But bloody because I'm walking on a rough road accompanied by Jesus in order to love those who are near me. Those who threaten or mock you threaten or mock Jesus. He is with you. Those who not give you what you deserve or are being unjust to you are not giving what Jesus deserves, not or being unjust to him. Jesus is with you. And then on the road to Jerusalem, for this last and most painful wilderness suffering of all time, Jesus made this sacrifice. Jesus made this understanding of how to live in the wilderness perfectly clear. In Mark 10, 42-45, Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point is not to make yourself the most important. The point is to be looking at Jesus, to be looking at his kingdom, to be meeting him in the wilderness, not sitting on your couch with a glass of lemonade. And just to underlie this truth, just to make this truth bold, we see another historic event in Mark 15, 21, at the very end of Mark, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus says, pick up your cross. Simon literally did it. But it was there, I think, at least in part, at least in Mark's mind, it was there to underline this idea that you and I need to suffer. We need to walk in the wilderness for Jesus' sake, for the kingdom's sake. Simon literally carried Jesus' cross. For you and me to take up our cross daily, to enter the wilderness to meet with God, to live for the kingdom, to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, to live in such a way that others can see that you are not your own, but you are living for something much bigger. That is what will attract people. Make no mistake, you will make sacrifices if you were to follow Jesus in the way. 
The way is not some esoteric philosophy that only a few are smart enough to find. The way is a path. It is a commitment. The way is following a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is with you, Christian, or can be with you, those who are still undecided. He is with you in a way that no one else can. Not your dad, not your scoutmaster, not anybody else. Will you trust him to be? I love how our passage ends. It ends describing this person who is with you. Verse 7, John preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What was it that John the Baptist cried out in the wilderness? What was it he said to everybody who would listen? We are to follow someone. The one, John says, we are to follow is mighty. Now, John was a mighty man. John was Rambo of his day. He went toe-to-toe with the king of the region and was so fearless in doing it that he won that king's respect. When John says, Jesus is mightier than I, the compliment was saying something. But John also says, the one we are to follow is our master. John here compares himself to the lowliest of slaves in a large mansion. He compared himself to the lowest of the low when he said he wasn't even worthy to tie Jesus' shoes. I usually say something like, I'll be washing that person's car in heaven. The one John says we are to follow is also the one we are to model after. I note this by him saying, I baptize you with water. We are to model ourselves after our master. John baptized people and Jesus baptized people with the Spirit. You and I aren't going to baptize with the Spirit. But we are to follow our master. How? By discipling people. By welcoming them into the church. Helping them become the men and women of God they were created to be. You can follow Jesus in that. But lastly, the one John says we are to follow is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Here we get to a crucial aspect of John's ministry. Whatever it was John understood about the Spirit, it was probably not much. He would have known the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation. He would have known that the Spirit moved to speak God's word through the prophets. He would have known that the Spirit was the one who went into the newly reassembled dry bones in Ezekiel. And he he would have known that the Spirit was promised in the new covenant by Jeremiah. Who is the Spirit? John didn't really know. What he knew, though, was what the Father told him. What did the Father tell him? The one following you, John, John, the one you are to follow, is going to baptize. But baptize in a way that you can't even imagine. So John went out there and baptized for repentance. Now we know we can do 
more than imagined. We recognize that the Spirit of God baptizes us at the beginning moment of our Christian lives. That is the new birth. That is the born again nest that occurs because God's, by God's grace, we are new creatures. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. But it begs a question for us today. Is the work of the Holy Spirit done in us? Is he finished with his work after he baptizes us and makes us Christians? Are we made children of God and then left as orphans? Oh, my Lord, no. Praise Jesus, no. Baptism, the physical rite of being put under the water, symbolizing death to living in the flesh, and then rising again, symbolizing living now the new, abundant, spirit-filled, eternal life, is more than a one-time event. This baptism is into, it is a sign of new life. Life that will never end. And that life at the beginning is only in its seed form. The seed is alive, it is maturing, it's growing, but we don't yet know what it will be when it matures. But I'm telling you, it'll be better than all the red oaks in the field. Stronger, too. And we need to notice in this reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if we are baptized into the Spirit, and if the Spirit gives life eternal, then you and I are on a journey to experience, to mature, to grow in what God has for us. And what God has for us is glory. Walk the road to glory that passes through suffering. Church, this life is a life in which we will suffer. Suffer financially, suffer physically, suffer in all kinds of ways. But we are only passing through. This is not where we will stay. So have courage. Know that the end is coming and know that that end is glory. Dallas Willard says the greatest problem in the church today is not bad theology. The greatest problem in the church today is passivity. It is apathy. The world can go to hell in a handbasket. I got my ticket to paradise. Don't watch the news and think poorly of those people on the news. Pray for them. That is the way of Jesus. It will cost you to love people so that they will see Jesus walking their roads, walking in their wilderness when they're walking with you. And it will be worth it. Life is a long-term hike. You're walking up and down hills with your pack that's a third of your weight. You often have bloody feet with no skin, wincing with each step. But your Father in heaven is with you. And what is true also is the fact that while we still walk up and down these, these mountains with sore feet and large packs, our Father is giving us strength. 
Our earthly fathers, wives, and children cannot walk in our shoes for us. But our Father in heaven can and does call us into the wilderness for these trials and for his presence. Depend on him. Cling to him now. Right now. So that you will find him in the wilderness and you will walk that road to glory that passes through suffering. Lord Jesus, give us grace to know that you are with us even right now. Bless us so that we will bless those who are in the wilderness with us. In Jesus' name, amen.